One of Ireland's best-selling electric vehicles just got better. Introducing the all-new and improved Kia Niro EV. With up to 460 kilometres driving range from a single charge and now packed with a host of standard safety features that have earned it the maximum 5-star Euro NCAP rating. The new Niro EV. Available to test drive at your local Kia dealer now. For more, see Kia.com. Kia. Movement that inspires. Welcome to a breath of fresh earth, taking the commitment to a clean environment to the next level. Your host, Rick Friedman, will crown the climate hero and villain of the week, along with discussing worldwide environmental issues, showcasing new products designed with the longevity of our planet in mind, and putting the spotlight on the individuals making a big impact in helping the climate and pollution crisis through social media. Now, your host, Rick Friedman. Now it's time for the Climate Villain of the Week. What's the cause of this tension anyway? We begin the show with our Villain of the Week because this company really makes me mad. And I wanted to get this segment over with so I can enjoy the rest of the show. I have a lot of fun subjects to talk about today. But first, we take aim at Royal Dutch Shell. They're known by most people in the States as Shell or Shell Oil. They make petroleum, petrochemicals, natural gas, lubricants, and liquefied natural gas and in 2019, their revenue exceeded $340 billion. Cambridge Dictionary says greenwashing is designed to make people believe that your company is doing more to protect the environment than it really is. Royal Dutch Shell, just like their competitor ExxonMobil, knew about climate change decades ago. Internal documents surfaced proved their guilt when they denied the truth about greenhouse gases caused global warming. Shell is starting to say the right things about climate change now by adding renewable energy to their portfolio but oil and gas remain their primary product for revenue. Shell says it supports the Paris Agreement goal to limit warming below 2 degrees centigrade and supports a vision of transition towards a net-zero emissions energy system. That sounds so nice. Shell isn't really committing their own business to net-zero, so what does that statement mean? Nothing. It's more of the same BS. Shell says it will transform its own business over time. How much time do they need? I'll be dead by the time they get their act together. Shell says they support the Paris Agreement. They're worried about how the changes will affect their bottom line. That's actually a reasonable concern for a huge corporation that employs thousands of hardworking people. But that doesn't mean they can lie about it. Shell's worried about litigation. Listen to this statement from Shell. In some countries, governments, regulators, organizations, and individuals have filed lawsuits seeking to hold fossil fuel companies liable for costs associated with climate change. While we believe these lawsuits to be without merit, losing any of these lawsuits could have a material adverse effect on our earnings, cash flow, and financial condition. Uh, no kidding, Sherlock. Shell anticipated lawsuits 20 years ago. One internal document that was uncovered is a 1988 Shell planning scenario, where the company hypothetically envisions a series of violent storms battering the eastern United States, which then spur environmental non-government organizations to bring class-action lawsuits against the United States government and fossil fuel companies on the grounds of neglecting what scientists have been saying for years, that something must be done. One statement from Shell's annual report says, Shell has long recognized that greenhouse gas emissions from the use of fossil fuels are contributing to the warming of the climate system. That 1988 The Greenhouse Effect document warned that greenhouse gas emissions would lead to a warming over the next century. The changes may be the greatest in recorded history. Some parts of the planet may become 
uninhabitable, and there could be significant changes in sea level, ocean currents, precipitation patterns, regional temperature, and weather. Impacts could be severe and could have major social, economic, and political consequences. That was in 1988, and that is exactly what has happened. What did Shell do with that knowledge back in 1988? They didn't do anything good. They started lying about it and encouraged people to doubt the science of global warming. Shell was a member of the Global Climate Coalition. They were a fossil fuel industry-funded group that worked to undermine climate science and blocked climate policy internationally. We talked about them last year. Doesn't this stuff make you mad? They knew everything and they did nothing. Kind of like Republicans in the first impeachment trial. We'll see what happens in the next one. Expect more of the same from spineless Republican senators. As for Royal Dutch Shell, I'm sure they're smart enough to see the changes in the world, and they'll figure out a way to keep profiting from people, even as we transition to alternative forms of energy. They didn't make $340 billion last year because they're stupid, but they still make me really mad. Okay, nerd time. When you're done listening to the show, I want you to go to a website for something really cool, earth.nullschool.net. Not now. Wait till the show's over. Come on. I still got some more time. All right, good. You're still here. Later, when you go to that website, you'll see the beautiful Earth with a black background. Move the cursor to anywhere on the planet you want, and you'll see the wind swirling around the area you've chosen. You can zoom in pretty close, and in the left-hand corner of the screen, you'll see the longitude, latitude, real-time wind direction and speed. How freaking cool is that? At this exact moment, the wind is really gusting over the North Atlantic. Not a good time for a ship to make their maiden voyage. The good news, or perhaps it's bad news, is that there's fewer icebergs than there were 100 years ago, so maybe they don't have to worry. An even cooler option is to click on the box in the lower left-hand corner and bring up a menu where you can change the image on the screen from wind to the ocean currents or waves or more functions, like seeing the level of PM 2.5 anywhere in the world. Here's some free advice. If you're on the northeast part of China, stay inside. Stop streaming Netflix and check it out. Here we go. Last episode, we talked about the beginning of the Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement. It's the equivalent of the Nobel Prize. On this episode, we're going to talk about Ruth Patrick, who was a lifetime researcher on the ecology of rivers. She was instrumental in providing a link between science and industry for the protection of nation's rivers. She was the first woman to win the prize back in 1975. In 1975, I was singing along to Earth, Wind, and Fire's Shining Star and Killer Queen, When Will I Be Loved, and Love Will Keep Us Together from The Captain and Tennille, a great music year in my life. But I didn't win in any awards, especially for dancing. Yikes. And in 1975, I was having a little trouble in Miss Wilson's science class. We won't get into the particulars, but suffice to say, she was not a big fan of students talking in class, and, well, many years later, I'm still talking. Ms. Patrick won many science prizes, including the Benjamin Franklin Medal for Distinguished Achievement in the Sciences. Here's a small world story for you. Last episode, we celebrated the life of Benjamin Franklin. Ms. Patrick was married twice. Her first husband was Charles Hodge, an entomologist and a direct descendant of Benjamin Franklin. Ms. Patrick died at the age of 105 in 2013. The URUE Wauwau are an indigenous people of Brazil, living in the state of Rodanio. The RUUE Wauwau are hunter-gatherers. They use a poison made from tree bark on their arrows when they're hunting tapir and other game. They're known for their distinctive tattoos around their mouths made from genapapo, a black vegetable dye. 
Oh, and while we're talking about tapers, the male of the species has a penis that looks like a fire hose. This is not really an environmental observation, but once you've seen a taper's private parts, you'll never forget it. It would be like if I was carrying a baseball bat down there. All right, back to the tribe. The RUE, woo woo, wow wow, sorry, a tribe of less than 300 people in the Brazilian Amazon rainforest that came into contact with people outside their communities back in the 1980s. Yet they still maintain many of their tribal ways. They and other tribes have recently begun using modern drones to detect and fight illegal deforestation in their territory. One tribesman explained it this way, Nature is everything to us. It is our life, our lungs, our hearts. We don't want to see the jungle chopped down. If you chop it all down, it will definitely be hotter, and there won't be a river or hunting or pure aid for us. Leaders from six indigenous communities learned how to operate drones to track deforestation when they realized they could see the forest from above and keep patrol over much of the areas. The RUE Wauwau lands lie within a 7,000 square mile protected area of dense jungle that can be difficult to monitor on foot, but drones allow them to cover more territory faster and avoid potentially dangerous confrontations with loggers, miners, and land grabbers. Within the first month of using drones, the tribe discovered an area of about 500 acres being illegally deforested. Days later, a helicopter spread grass seed on the plot of land, indicating that the land was going to be used for cattle pasture. The tribe's team caught it all on video. So far, a World Wildlife Fund project has donated 19 drones to 18 organizations focused on the Amazon. This is not the only place drones have been used to stop land abuse. Drones have been used by indigenous people in Ecuador, Peru, and other places for about three years. Now that drones are so affordable and relatively easy to use, it's a great tool. These high-resolution images, videos, and GPS mapping can also be submitted in court as evidence of illegal activity. Ha! You're busted. The rainforest is crucial to slow global warming since trees act as a carbon sink. Members of the tribe have faced death threats from illegal loggers, but they remain determined to use this new technology to protect their homelands. your social media minute. Check them out after the show. All right. The introduction says one minute. Let's see how I do. Dr. Leia Stokes is an assistant professor of political science at the University of California, Santa Barbara. You can follow her along with 45,000 other people at Leia Stokes. She's the author of the book that came out in 2020 called Short-Circuiting Policy, Interest Groups and the Battle Over Clean Energy and Climate Policy in the American States. Dr. Stokes, along with Dr. Katherine Wilkinson, are the hosts of a brand new podcast started in October of 2020 called A Matter of Degrees. Listeners are raving about the podcast, with an average rating of 4.9 out of 5. Episodes run about 45 or 50 minutes in length with interesting and informative interviews. Give it a listen. There's plenty of room in the podcast world for everyone trying to save our species. Five, four, three, two, one, boom. Darn it, I missed it by three seconds. It's time for the Climate Hero of the Week. There's a new idea to help solve a couple of huge world problems, housing for migrants and what to do with recycled plastic. Here comes a Norwegian startup company called Athalo. They're going to build homes made from recycled plastic and produce homes out of plastic waste and provide sustainable and affordable housing for everybody. 
Last October, on World Habitat Day, UN Habitat launched a partnership with Athalo to combat both issues and promote a sustainable, adequate, and affordable shelter for all. Athalo's new patented technology allows for building 100% recycled plastic homes. While the possibilities are many, Athalo will begin with a focus on sub-Saharan Africa to create affordable housing. The challenge that comes with traditional construction is that it is neither economically efficient nor sustainable. There's a billion people in the world living in slum conditions. The need for low-cost housing is immense, and it's expected to rise to upwards of 360 million more units by 2050. Othalo hopes to start mass production by 2022. A typical Othalo house will recycle 8 tons of plastic waste. It's estimated that with the plastic waste produced, more than a billion homes can be built. A billion homes. The technology can be used for other products too, like temperature-controlled mobile storage units for food and medicine, refugee shelters, and larger modular buildings like schools and hospitals. The manufacturing of all of their systems is planned to take place on-site, which will help create jobs for the people living there. Loss of habitat, pollution, and climate change threaten millions of species. Who is on the chopping block today? The Chinese paddlefish was one of the largest freshwater fish in the world and was most commonly found in the Yangtze River in Asia. It's extinct. The species became endangered between 2005 and 2010. At maturity, the species measured an average length of almost 10 feet. Some recorded paddlefish grew as long as 23 feet, making it one of the largest species of primarily freshwater fishes. So what happened to it? The Chinese paddlefish lived for about 200 million years. They survived the mass extinction that killed the dinosaurs, but they could not survive mankind. As China grew in population, becoming the most populous country on Earth, the main cause of decline was the construction of the Gezoba and Three Georges dams, causing population fragmentation and blocking Andronomous spawning migration. Overfishing also played a part. Congratulations, humans! You've created another example of how true the story of the Lorax is, as it pops up again and again in the real world. This is not a case of using DNA of the paddlefish stuck in the blood of a mosquito a la Jurassic Park. There, I did it again. Once gone, the paddlefish is gone forever. The Gezeba Dam, built on the main stem of the Yangtze, cut off the paddlefish from their only spawning ground upstream. The paddlefish was one of only two paddlefish species in existence. The other one is the American paddlefish, and that is a vulnerable species found in the Mississippi River Basin in the United States. Adios, Chinese paddlefish. Nice to know ya. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Doom scrolling, also known as doom surfing, is the act of consuming a large quantity of negative online news at once. Mental health experts have stated that the practice can be detrimental to mental health, and I agree a thousand percent. Instagram has become my favorite site to find amazing photographers, artists, and people working alongside me fighting the climate and pollution crises. If your social media needs a boost like mine did, please contact at Properly Social. The staff will tailor a program to suit your needs. Now here's a few of my favorite Instagram accounts. First is Joel Sartor. J-O-E-L-S-A-R-T-O-R-E. 1.5 million people follow his account. He's got amazing pictures of nature taken through his 25-year career. Everyday climate change. Photographers from six continents document climate change. You can share your photos too. Cornell Lab of Ornithology. They're the world leader in study, appreciation, and conservation of birds. 
BBC Earth. Not a surprise that they would have a big following, over 7 million people. You can share your stories. Check out amazing pictures. Zoe Keller Art. She has beautiful prints and original drawings from the artist for sale. Alex Wildology. You want close-up of insects? Now you know where to go. The Caterpillar Lab. Do I need to say anything else about that? It's caterpillars. Drones of whales. Yep, pictures of whales taken from a drone. I mean, what did you expect? The National Park Service has a great Instagram account, too, with photos from all over the national parks in America. And the NASA Climate Change. Lots of great information and cool pictures. It's not just about rocket ships. Ladies and gentlemen, let's raise a glass to our birthday girl. Susan Solomon was born on January 19, 1956, in Chicago. She's an atmospheric chemist, working for most of her career at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Solomon, along with her colleagues, was the first to propose the chlorofluorocarbon free radical reaction mechanism that is the cause of the Antarctic ozone hole. I think I said that pretty well. In 1986 and 1987, Solomon led the National Ozone Expedition to McMurdo Sound where the team gathered the evidence to confirm the accelerated reactions. Solomon was the solo leader of the expedition and the only woman on the team. In 2002, Discover Magazine recognized her as one of the 50 most important women in science. In 2008, she was selected by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. That is a pretty lofty list. She also serves on the Science and Security Board for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists and we've talked about them in a previous episode. She's won the Blue Planet Prize, the Volvo Environment Prize, the Service to American Medal, the National Medal of Sciences, and many others. She's got an Antarctic glacier named after her, called what else? The Solomon Glacier. How cool is that? Or maybe I should say, how cold is that? Well, today it's about 28 degrees Fahrenheit at the glacier, which is about the same temperature here in Ohio. We don't have any glaciers, but we have cold air. Solomon is the author of Coldest March, the story of British explorer Robert Falcon Scott and his team of explorers during their tragic 1912 trip to Antarctica. Oops, I gave away the ending. I said it was tragic. Gets so much for a spoiler. The book has received great reviews. Happy birthday, and thank you for listening to episode 24. It's hard for me to believe that the next episode will mark the beginning of the second year of this podcast. I've learned so much in the last 12 months. The show is listened to in over 60 countries and six continents. I'm still waiting for someone from Antarctica to listen. Maybe I can get Solomon to go back there and listen. Come on, McMurdo Station, give me 20 minutes, just once. The next podcast drops on February 15th, which just happens to be my birthday. We won't need the fire department to put out all the candles on the cake, but I will probably need two deep breaths. If you have a comment or a question, please reach out to me at rf at richardfriedman.net, or follow the show on Instagram at A Breath of Fresh Earth, or on Twitter at B-O-F-E Podcast. And if you leave a review, that would be all right, too. Until next time, good night, Galileo. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to A Breath of Fresh Earth with your host, Rick Friedman. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you're the first to hear new episodes. If you want to nominate someone for Climate Hero of the Week, send it to Rick at the link below. This has been a breath of fresh air. Thanks for listening.